informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us on this good Friday and letting us be part of your day. We hope you are safe and well. Be careful, be safe, and even with all that's going on, have a good Easter weekend. I'll have some thoughts on COVID-19 and the Easter holiday coming up a little bit later on in the program. But before that, we're going to talk with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. We'll look at how the rural health care system is handling COVID-19. What are the needs? What are the areas of concern as this pandemic continues? And we're going to be talking about markets. We'll look at the WASDE numbers and some other thoughts on the markets and the economy with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. All that coming up on today's program. So thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. The president says that the government will distribute funds to producers impacted by coronavirus-related market disruptions in the pretty near future. The president, commenting during his uh, task force briefing at the White House, was asked about the possibility of USMCA uh, going into effect in July. The president turned the answer to a commitment to distribute funds to farmers and ranchers saying we'll be helping our farmers by the way the farmers got hurt very badly by all this people are eating less from the standpoint that there's no restaurants that are open no businesses are open no no hotels are open they'll start to come back but we're going to be helping out our farmers let's talk about that with phil brasher with agripulse communications phil thank you for joining us what do you make of the president's comments as we wait to see how usda is going to divvy up the money they have to assist farmers through covid19 yeah uh uh, mike i think uh, what he said uh yesterday at the uh the briefing was uh, was very consistent with what uh uh, Agriculture Secretary Purdue said uh, just the day before, and also what uh, House Ag Chairman Colin Peterson had said uh, up in Minnesota on a uh, webcast uh, town hall. Uh, Peterson, who had talked to Purdue, said he expected uh, payments to go out uh, within the next two weeks. That was, uh, uh, he said that, I believe, on uh, Wednesday. Uh, Secretary Purdue said they were trying to get them out uh, sooner rather than later and talked a little about uh, how much in total they would have to spend. And that's a, that's in question, too, right? I mean, Secretary Purdue saying he only has so much now, some won't be available till this summer. In the meantime, uh, a lot of ag groups are sending him recommendations saying this is what they need. Uh, so he's got to make some tough decisions. Oh, he's got a long, long list of uh uh, proposals, uh, the, uh, for the produce industry itself, which has been absolutely hammered by, uh, the shutdown in restaurants and hotels and schools, uh, with all, you know, with perishable product, uh, they've asked for, uh, uh $5 billion, uh, up to $5 billion for payments to, uh, growers and shippers to compensate them for, uh, those, those lost sales. Yeah. I, what was, uh, what was a little new in what uh, the secretary said on Wednesday is we, we knew they had this $9.5 billion pot of money in the stimulus bill. 
earmarked for livestock producers and fruits and vegetables and uh, a local uh, local agriculture. But he also uh, said that he has uh, $6 billion left in the CCC, the Cloud Credit Corporation, account to also spend, add that together, it's $15.5 billion. They'll have another $14 billion, but that won't be available until uh, July. It's quite possible Congress may add to that as well uh, and uh, further stimulus bills. While it's a lot of money, it's going to go pretty quickly. So I've got a feeling as these decisions are made, there will be some not happy with the the decisions that are made by the secretary about who gets what and how much. Yeah, there's so many. I, I, I mentioned produce just as uh, one of the big ones, uh, but also, and they are authorized into that $9.5 billion account that I mentioned. But obviously, the dairy industry really hurting. They have a number of asks, and they want, to, they want payments to producers to, uh, uh, to lower production and to processors to keep buying milk. And you've got local ag that's in there, a number of, uh, of uh, commodities. And we haven't talked about a cotton uh, the cotton sector is just getting blasted. Uh, the price has just been in free fall since January. Uh, they're, they're hurting as well. Meanwhile, USDA also expanding its uh, investigation into the cattle market. Right, but we've had so much volatility in the last few weeks. Um, it could well continue. We have plants uh uh, cutting production, um, going offline because uh, of uh, workers uh, getting sick, managers getting sick. Uh, we'll see how that uh, plays through the system. But uh, you had all that uh, hoarding in the supermarkets that took place, uh, created shortages at stores, uh, and all this stuff has got to work its uh, working its way through the system. Yeah, so we got USDA expanding its investigation. Uh, Justice Department being asked to uh, get involved as well. And now we're also, here. here's more concern. The Department of Agriculture has confirmed the detection of a highly pathogenic avian influenza for the first time in a few years. This H7N3 strain of this disease detected in a South Carolina commercial turkey flock that disease destroyed commercial poultry operations uh, back a few years ago, resulting in the death of more than 48 million birds. So here we go again. Yeah, well, if there's anything we don't need, it's, it's a uh, it's an animal disease like this, especially one that, uh, like you said, just decimated uh, uh, flocks, uh, especially in the Midwest, uh, layers and uh, uh, other birds. Uh, yeah, uh, we don't need that kind of market that market uh, disruption right now with uh, everything else that's going on. Yeah, it's just one thing after another, and and now we wait to see what con- what next step Congress takes uh, if they can decide on the phase four of some kind of a CARES package. Right. Well, the the immediate uh, concern, probably from agriculture standpoint, is this uh, Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, probably not quite such a big deal for row crop uh, producers, but th- these are these forgivable loans that are meant to help small businesses uh, retain, uh, basically grants uh, is what they are, basically to help uh, small businesses retain uh, or rehire workers 
uh, farms are eligible for those, and uh, but a lot of uh, tremendous interest, uh, obviously not just from agriculture, but small businesses across the country. $350 billion in the initial uh, bill, and uh, uh, another $250 billion. The administration is looking for another $250 billion, so. Yeah, some big, big numbers, that's for sure. Yeah. Phil, take care. Stay Absolutely. safe. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, great to be here. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. So how's the rural health care system handling COVID-19? We'll get an update next on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. How is the rural health care system holding up during COVID-19? With an update, we're joined now by Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, thank you for being with us again. Can you kind of give us an updated overview? How is the system holding up? Hi, Mike. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I think that uh, rural providers of care are hanging on uh, uh, tenuously, actually, uh, in terms of their uh, financials. Uh, many of them are experiencing downturns in their uh, volumes due to canceling uh, elective and non-emergency procedures. And this has really decreased volumes 40 to 60 percent in many rural hospitals. Then we have other places around the country where they're experiencing surges of COVID-19 related cases. So uh, those are having a much different set of problems, but nevertheless, uh, uh, we're working hard on their behalf to make sure that they get the resources they need. Was there much help in that phase three package that Congress passed for the rural health care system? Um, I guess the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, there were major provisions in the bill that uh, addressed health care, uh, hospitals in particular. Uh, but unfortunately, the rural sections of those bills were not uh, very prominent. And so we're fighting uh, hard to make sure that the resources that were appropriated are being sent to rural places. So, for example, uh, the $100 billion emergency hospital and other provider fund, uh, we're told this morning by Deputy Secretary Hargan, has been a tranche of that has been actually deposited in uh, hospitals and clinics accounts today. So I'll be following up on that to uh, verify uh, that fact. What are some areas of need? What are some things that the rural health care system needs to deal with COVID-19? Well, right now, resources, of course, to cover those volume declines. I've already mentioned that. The other area is workforce and staffing shortages. Uh, in areas where the COVID-19 virus has uh, created an outbreak, uh, obviously employees of our hospitals and clinics are getting sick themselves. They're being taken out of service. So workforce is a big, uh, a big problem. 
Uh, personal protective equipment, uh, PPE, accessing those to keep those employees safe is still a problem. And then uh, testing um, is still in many places around the country hard to come by. So knowing whether the patient or the healthcare worker actually is infected or not is uh, still very difficult. We're talking with Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association. Brock, you, you referred to this earlier in your comments. One of the real ironies here is the fact that there's this uh, a greater need for healthcare workers, but at the same time, because of what's happening, the shutdown of elective uh, uh, procedures and things like that, and short budgets and financial strains on facilities, we're hearing about healthcare workers losing their jobs. So these two things are happening at the same time. Yeah, Mike, this is what I refer to as the COVID paradox uh, for rural hospitals and, and clinics. Uh, we have uh, places in Kentucky and in Mississippi and Alabama that are laying off employees because of the downturn in volumes, which, of course, you would not expect uh, during a pandemic. Uh, but the unfortunate side effect is is that those uh, situations could turn on a dime. And uh, in a week, uh, the census could go from nearly zero to being busting at the seams with sick patients. And so that's why the, these resources are so critically necessary uh, to keep in place, because uh, should and when and should that occur, we want to make sure that um, those communities are going to be served uh, to be able to uh, care for patients in their highest time of need. Are rural hospitals having to compete with urban hospitals to get the equipment that's needed? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. I think that urban hospitals are having the same issues, so we're all kind of in the same boat uh, between rural and urban in terms of the access to these uh, uh, items. I, I think that obviously with state uh, stockpiles that are, there's often uh, being able, they often are able to supply uh, needed equipment and supplies uh, from the state stockpile and uh, get those things delivered. Um, obviously, these are important things, and so sometimes when you're getting really low, uh, the anxiety levels go high, but then it seems that sometimes these uh, supplies get in at the last minute. We hear about hot spots and epicenters looking primarily at the urban areas across the country. What about in rural America? Are there some hot spots, some uh, areas where the system may be overwhelmed at, at this point? Yes, uh, that's a great question, Mike. So in, uh, we're, we're seeing a spike um, in the number of cases being confirmed per 100,000 people in rural counties. Uh, this is increasing uh, around the United States, uh, particularly in places like uh, um, Idaho, Colorado, uh, Georgia, southwest Georgia particularly, uh, we've got some places in Indiana uh, around Batesville that are subsiding somewhat, but of course there could be a resurgence. And one of the things that we're following in terms of uh, inf information is just what uh, social distancing has to do in terms of keeping the spread of this virus from uh, uh, increasing exponentially. A lot of these hospitals and healthcare centers in rural America were kind of on financial thin ice to begin with. Are we in danger of losing a lot of them because of this? Um, 
Unfortunately, Mike, I think that's uh, probably going to be the case. Uh, before Corona, uh, the BC, uh, as I refer to it often, uh, we had 453 hospitals in rural communities that were vulnerable to closure. Uh, 216 of that 453 were incredibly, um, are, are most vulnerable. Uh, that's according to our data partners at Chartist Advantage Health Analytics. And we uh, estimate that of those 216, um, the average number of days of cash on hand is about 33 uh, days. And uh, that, of course, is uh, very precarious, especially as we move into a time of uh, extreme downturns in volume. So, so that's, um, that's certainly a significant thing that we're following and watching. So things like depositing uh, money uh, that uh, could help stem the tide of some of these cash flow problems uh, that uh, the government made today uh, will be very, very helpful and impactful. We hear a lot about not enough beds in some places, and we know around some of the cities, uh, the building of temporary hospitals. What about bed space in rural America at the health uh, facilities? Well, again, it's uh, feast or famine. In Batesville, Indiana, uh, they have a 25-bed critical access hospital there. Uh, they had to uh, staff up to 38 beds. Uh, that They had that many patients at one time uh, or possibly more. And uh, that uh, certainly would put any kind of, um, it would certainly stress the system uh, in that particular area. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers at governor's requests of each state can isolate and um, build out new beds. And so I know that the Army Corps is, is active around the country. We have a lot of rural hospitals that have closed, um, 128 uh, since uh, May of, since uh, 2010. Uh, so those are resources because they obviously have uh, uh, piping for medical gases. Uh, they've got uh, some of the infrastructure still in place, and with the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, they could possibly do a really nice uh, uh, conversion of those into space if they're going to need beds uh, turned around quickly. The big question now is, has the curve been flattened? It seems like in some places maybe it has, other places not. What do we? What can we say about rural America at this point? Uh, the curve is flattening in some places. We're hoping in New York City, for example, uh, that uh, they may have reached the apex on the curve and they're coming back down the other side. Uh, but I'm afraid in uh, other states around the country, the, the anticipated peak in the curve isn't uh, anticipated until, say, April 27th, or even now they're pushing uh, some places into the first part of May. So uh, we're watching that. As I said a second ago, uh, we're edging towards about 40 uh, persons uh, infected per 100,000 in rural counties, and that is increasing. Um, and so, and I'm hearing anecdotal stories around the country of clusters of infection that are occurring um, in in places in Nebraska, and uh, and and those are the um, and those are being monitored, of course, and uh, and followed. All right, Brock, we know that you're very, very busy. We thank you for taking time to be with us for the update, and we will stay in touch. Stay safe. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Up next, we'll talk markets, look at WASDE numbers with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. You're listening to AOA. 
drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thank you for joining us. Uh, we have some WASDE numbers to look at, and I guess no surprise, they reflect what's happening with the ethanol industry right now. Oh, they really do. USDA did make a significant cut to its ethanol uh, use of corn. I think there's going to be more cuts coming. I don't blame them for being conservative in this first outlook change. Um, because, frankly, there's so much we don't know about how long it's going to take to get America back to work and driving again. Uh, as we've looked at some informal industry surveys that we've done about what the expectations are in the industry about driving and as a percent of year-go levels on a month-to-month basis, using those numbers uh, to therefore correlate into how much ethanol will be needed to blend into gasoline we have some sharper cuts and think that there's going to be some more significant reductions than what USDA shows. I hope USDA is more right than we are, uh, but we're braced uh, for more downward adjustments. Are we starting to see markets trying to buy some more bean acres uh, over corn? We are, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure it's uh, trying to buy soybean acres over corn as it is trying to discourage corn acres in, in favor of something else, which the default then is soybean. Um, the corn industry is certainly uh, hurting right now. An informal Twitter survey that we showed or that we did here um, over the first days of April indicated that a much higher percentage of people than normal were still considering making changes to their acreage because of what's happening in the ethanol boom. In fact, I was I was very surprised uh, by the degree of uh, farmers who were still willing to make that change. We saw overall that uh, 55% said they're going to stick with their initial plans, but that meant that 45% were still looking to make a change. And in fact, a quarter of the people surveyed, and I recognize Twitter is not a scientific survey, but a quarter of them said that they would change corn acres by 10% or more. Arlen, it's been interesting how things have changed as we close down restaurants and food service sector, and we see the shift to the retail sector, people eating at home more, uh, what they're eating. That's interesting. It's had an impact on the wheat market, hasn't it? It really has. We find that uh, when people eat at home, they eat uh, smaller portions of meat, less meat, and more grains and vegetables. And that may mean more cereals, however it plays out. And uh, that's not just true here, but it's around the world to varying degrees. And that's worked out a couple of ways. Uh, First of all, it does increase the demand for wheat and rice. Second of all, it's made exporting countries start to rethink Maybe we shouldn't export everything that we have. Maybe we need to keep back more within the country. 
And so we've seen some countries talk about holding back bigger reserves. And countries that normally import have become very comfortable with just-in-time supplies because they always know when they need it, they can get it in this world. Well, coronavirus has made them rethink that with some of the transportation problems that have come up and sort of thinking maybe we need to keep a bigger reserve on hand. So I think over the next year, we're going to see an increase in demand for wheat and rice, some of those staple grains, and uh, that's that's going to help out those grains in the marketplace. Talking with Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. We're starting to see uh, what we feared might happen as the virus hits some of these packing plants and some cutback shutdowns. So we're starting to see a real strain, a real test on that supply chain. Yeah, that supply chain is really designed to be just in time, all the way from the birth of the animal to to the grocery store shelf. And so anything that disrupts that creates a lot of problems up and down the chain. And now suddenly we're facing that. The USDA is making a priority to try to keep packing plants moving, keep them going, keep inspectors in place, and making sure everything functions so we don't disrupt the nation's food supply of meat. Uh, but it's very difficult. Uh, workers come down with coronavirus, so they miss work. Other workers are afraid to be around other you know, co-workers, afraid they're going to get coronavirus from them. They work pretty close to be side-by-side in those plants, so they don't show up. And we have some plants where three to 400 workers may not show up for a shift. And uh, that creates a lot of problems. As you indicate, it's uh, caused some plants to have to temporarily shut down. Other plants slow the chain speed. That slows the amount of meat coming out. And, of course, domestic meat demand is down right now. But what it does do is it backs up the animals so they have heavier weights. It's good for feed grain demand, but it means that we have even more meat supply on hand once those animals are harvested. So it does create a lot of problems in the system. USDA announcing it's expanding its investigation into the cattle market, there have been a lot of calls from the uh, beef producers as well as member of Congress, members of Congress to do that. What, what do you make of what's happening there? Well, it's really hard when you're struggling to make it on the farm and you see a packer uh, with $300 per head profit margins, and uh, at one point it even topped uh, estimated margins, top $600 a head for cattle. And that's very hard. Hogs obviously never got that high. They've been hovering around 20 to 30, at times maybe $40 a head. Um, but particularly in the beef sector, that's been really tough. Um, we are in a free market system, and we want to think that that free market system is working, that there's no collusion at hand. Um, but the Packers have been very good at managing chain speed in recent years. Uh, to make sure that they got the profits and not the producer. We did have one major packer out there, Tyson, that was offering premiums uh, on cattle at one point uh, or a couple of weeks back uh, to get cattle in when the demand was really high and consumers are stocking up the freezers, trying to do something, and also giving out some big bonuses to their employees, um, which I think was trying to help on the PR side. Uh, but it's really hard for the producers. What do you make of China's purchases? Are they just living up to phase one of the trade deal, or is there more to it? 
Well, I think it's a big part of living up to the trade deal. Um, they bought some more hard red winter wheat this morning, um, another uh, 6.1 million bushels of hard red winter wheat. They bought some soybeans. Well, unknown destinations bought soybeans, so we don't know for sure it was China. We think so. Uh, two cargoes of beans, one for old crop and one for new crop delivery. It's uh, most recent big purchase of corn um, what really troubles me was that uh, all but one cargo of that purchase, about 20 million bushels, were for new crop delivery, meaning after September 1. Well, after September 1, they'll have new crop supplies of their own. So that tells me they really didn't need the corn. Uh, they were just buying it because it was cheap and it because it helped meet their obligation to the United States, which I'm glad they did that, but that's a little bit discouraging, and maybe the demand really isn't there right now. Um, they're still moving forward as we talk to our people on the ground and removing the, uh, going through the paperwork to remove the anti-dumping tariffs on DDGs, but by the time they get that done, will there be any DDGs left to buy at a price they're willing to pay? I really, I think a good test would be as if they would start buying significant quantities of ethanol to get our ethanol plants back up again. That would open up the DDG market that they would so like to get into again and purchase. And uh, to me, that's one of the real tests. But everything seems to be very quiet among our sources on the ethanol side right now, even though it does pencil into their gasoline quite profitably. Finally, Arlen, what's your marketing message to farmers going to the fields? Either they have started or there soon will be. At the same time, they still probably have some bins full of old crop. Uh, how, how do they market or plan through this? Yeah, I have I have a lot of people say, well, this really feels like a bottom to me. And I can understand that, and it does have that feel. But until we know how the coronavirus plays out, be wary of being overly confident that the bottom is in until – we know how the coronavirus is going to play out. So know what your risk exposure is that you can afford to take and make sure you're protecting your downside risk. Having said that, the market is priced in worst-case scenarios. And so, therefore, if, in fact, we do start to peak here through the weekend and things start to get better in the United States, the tone starts to shift. We've got a lot of central bank money coming into the system the market would be expected to be looking at the same fundamentals through a little better lens as we go forward in the months ahead. And so it should give us a few more pricing opportunities. More and more talk about how to restart the economy, kind of a rolling start perhaps or whatever they're they're considering. But there's just still a lot of unknowns how that will happen and how long it'll take. Yeah, there's really no playbook here. And the quicker we're able to restart the economy, the better time, the easier it'll be for it to recover. The longer this goes, the more bankruptcies there are, the more difficult it is for things to recover. The more people stay at home, the longer or the more uncomfortable they are getting out driving again. The quicker we can get them going, the quicker they'll be out driving and using that ethanol. Yeah, it's uh it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, the, the health aspect and the economic aspect as we work through COVID-19. Arlen, as always, thank you very much for being with us. Stay safe. Happy Easter to you. Happy Easter to you. The holiday goes on even if we can't gather this weekend. That's right. Thank you very much, Arlen. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. 
kind of a segue to our next segment. Some some of my thoughts on COVID-19, lessons we're learning, importance of uh, realizing we're all links in the chain. And even with COVID-19, we do indeed celebrate Easter this weekend. Some thoughts next on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us on this good Friday as we head into the Easter weekend. It'll certainly be a different one. Uh, We won't be gathering in our churches for Easter Sunday services like we normally would, but Uh, Certainly, we can stay connected. I often say this, uh, we may be socially distanced, but we need to make sure we're not spiritually distanced. Stay in contact with each other and uh, um, let people know you're thinking about them, caring for them, checking up on them. Uh, Right now, as we go through COVID-19, this new normal that we're dealing with, uh, we hope we're flattening the curve, as we hear so much about, that that we're getting on the the other side of this and we're headed towards... uh, recovery we're headed towards uh, good health again and returning the economy getting it started again so many unknowns many anxious moments we're all dealing with this new normal and one of the things we're dealing with is how the government has had to determine essential workers and i understand what they're doing there and and why those designations uh, are somewhat are needed for different uh, regulatory issues and and aid and things like that but i think we all need to remember that all lives are essential and we're all essential and we all play a a part in this and uh, i think one of the lessons learned from covid19 is we we hear a lot about supply chains and things like that is that we all are a link in the bigger chain and now we all realize especially in our divided society today that there are a lot of things that do divide us politics being a big one certainly but there are several others race to religion, urban versus rural. There are a lot of different things that that tend to divide us. Now, diversity doesn't have to be divisive. In fact, at times in our history, diversity has been one of our strengths. One of the many things that we are learning from COVID-19 is that the virus does not discriminate. We are all at risk. Now, certainly some more than others, but the virus cuts across those lines of division that we have drawn for ourselves. Ironically, one of the things that we have learned is that we all need to work together to get through this crisis. And in the process, we are learning just how many links there are in the chain that we all need for survival. Some people that maybe we just overlooked in the past Hopefully, one of the things that will come out of COVID-19 is we'll have a greater appreciation for what they do. For instance, 
grocery store workers. Before this crisis, they may have been anonymous to many of us, but now we realize how important it is to have someone stocking those shelves. We get frustrated now at times. We go into a store we can't find on those shelves exactly what we want or as much as we want. But, you know, there are those grocery store workers that are putting their health at risk, being on that line and being there to unpack those boxes and getting things on those shelves as quickly as they can. Truck drivers that before may have been the object of our frustration as we shared highway space now are recognized as crucial deliverers of essential goods. Workers in meat processing plants that were invisible to many of us before this crisis now mean the difference between us having meat or not having meat for our meals in many cases. And those uh, those jobs and those workers are increasingly important. And we see as the virus hits some of those plants, some of those workers, how vulnerable it makes our supply chain. Farmers and ranchers often overlooked by an increasingly urban society, now are once again being seen as the providers they are of the food that we no longer take quite as much for granted as we once did. Hopefully we'll remember that even after COVID-19 is over. And of course the healthcare workers that are out there risking their health and the health of their families, frankly, to care for those fighting for their lives. Those healthcare workers are front and center in the battle with this terrible virus that has brought down the world's economies and left world leaders scrambling for solutions. Yes, there are many lessons to be learned from COVID-19, and one of them is that we need each other. We are indeed all links in the chain of life. And that old saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link is being proven for all to see during this historic time. Our world has been shaken to its core. Our lives have been turned upside down, totally disrupted in ways we never could have imagined just a few weeks ago. Think about this. Some things we thought would never change may never be the same again. Think about that. Some of the things we thought in our lives would never change may never be the same again, even after this pandemic is over. Here we are on Good Friday, headed into the Easter weekend. And as I mentioned earlier, we won't celebrate this Easter the way we have uh, Easter's throughout our lives. We can't gather in our churches and our places of worship. But as we celebrate Easter this weekend in a different way, we need to remember that even though COVID-19 can change how we celebrate, it does not change why we celebrate. Easter is the great reminder that although the world has turned upside down, God is still in control. No problem, not even a virus, not even a pandemic is too big for God to handle. And we just need to put our trust in Him. Working together with our faith in God, we will get through this. So I want to say Happy Easter to everyone We still celebrate. We do it in a little different way. We do it remotely, but we have so much to celebrate. 
Happy Easter, everyone. Be safe, be well, and reach out to others. Stay in contact with them. Don't be spiritually distanced, even as we are socially distanced. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll be back with you again on Monday, right here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.